hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of AIGA New York, championing the future of design for all. The full value of design can only be realized when all people can participate. And to create that future, we must build it together. Learn more at AIGANY.org. What I mean is way back when we were first starting all this stuff, we should have built commerce into the original browsers. So when the bros in Silicon Valley convinced various traditional media executives that they should put it up for free and basically came up with an advertising model, it was almost all over right there. No one understood that if you could not charge for what you were making, if you did not have enough confidence in your editorial, you might as well not even be in the game. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm Sean Plotner. I'm Patrick Mitchell. Today's guest, Terry McDonald, is the kind of editor you fear based on reputation, but would probably run through a wall for at 3 a.m. on deadline day. As for that reputation, I've never worked with McDonald, but a simple Google search fills the screen with an undeviating set of impressions like these. He helped define American masculinity, a version of manhood inspired by Hemingway, the manliest of literary men. And indeed, his core of collaborators includes a rogues gallery of literary tough guys, Jim Harrison, Edward Abbey, Tom McGuane, George Plimpton, and Hunter Thompson. But missing from all that testosterone, until now, has been the true hero of McDonald's life and career, and the subject of his beautifully crafted new memoir, Irma, The Education of a Mother's Son. But read his other book, The Accidental Life, and you'll discover a true editorial savant, an engaged partner to his co-workers, whose adventurousness knows no limits. And apparently, neither does his resume. McDonald, an ASME Editor's Hall of Famer, has topped the masthead at more magazines than anybody we know. And those magazines have been nominated for 29 National Magazine Awards, winning in 2003, 2005, and 2010. Terry is one of the legends of our craft, says ASME's executive director, Sid Holt. He's a supremely talented editor whose legacy to magazines will include not only unforgettable stories and images, but also an inspiring vision of what magazines can be both in print and on digital platforms. Our editor-at-large, Sean Plotner, visited with McDonald shortly after the release of his new memoir. Well, Terry, I thought we could start, before we go way back to the very, very beginning, just take a look back at 11 years ago when you were inducted into the Editor's Hall of Fame during the annual National Magazine Awards ceremony. It's not long ago, although in the context of media evolution, it may seem like an eon. Anyway, it's May 2012. You're standing before the magazine industry's best and brightest, giving your induction speech. Here's what you said. I, I think that that being an editor right now um, is the most interesting time to be an editor because of all the possibilities that are coming. I think it's absolutely gonna rip. And in that sense, change is going to be very, very good, especially when the challenge is basically change or go home. My response to that is no fear, bring it. Um, there is just so much interesting stuff to do. You still feel the same way? Sure. Has the last decade changed anything? Make you feel at all different? Yeah. Yes, there's been all kinds of change. People have learned a lot. I think though that what still remains problematic is enough confidence in the content of media to actually charge enough for it to sustain it. What I mean is way back in the, when we were first starting all this stuff, we should have built commerce into the original browsers. So when the bros in Silicon Valley convinced various traditional media executives that they should put it up for free and basically came up with an advertising model, it was almost all over right there. 
no one understood that if you could not charge for what you were making, if you did not have enough confidence in your editorial, you might as well not even be in the game. And that was an argument that was had all across all traditional media companies. It was very frustrating if you were on the side that I was on saying that we've got to charge for this. Yeah, interesting, because it's certainly hard to start charging once you've been giving it away for free. Uh, well, now that's the biggest cliche that there was at the time, too, as we went through all those years. And now look what the New York Times is doing. They were in a deep hole when they were giving it away for free. They had yeah. the confidence and the firepower and the strategic wisdom to stand by what they were really about. That speech was really interesting. And to me, knowing what you've done, it's certainly not just a bunch of macho bluster. Your career proves that you've embraced change heartily. You've done it all, working in the era of paste-up, an early adopter of computers, desktop publishing, creating the first magazine for the iPad. You helped launch a digital hub for lovers of books and literature recently. And I don't think you've stopped working. Terry McDonald is far from being a print dinosaur. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. But just to give listeners a sense of where you've been and what you've done, journalism and writing and magazine editing has taken you to quite a few places. And I'm just going to list them here real quickly. And forgive me if I forget a few, but the Associated Press, San Francisco Magazine, City Magazine, Outside Magazine, Rocky Mountain Magazine, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, Smart, Esquire, Sports Afield, Men's Journal, Us Weekly, Sports Illustrated, and Time Inc. We got startups and launches, new platforms, new appliances, not to mention your books and your poetry and your various other projects, to which I just say, wow, you really have done quite a bit and you're keeping at it. But let's go way back to the beginning. What was your first exposure to magazines as a child? I remember magazines being around. I remember Life magazine being around and liking to look at it. I remember my mother bringing home a copy of Life that had Ernest Hemingway on the cover and it had The Old Man in the Sea inside. And she told me that I would like it before she read it to me, and I did. And it, it turned me on to a kind of reading where I, as a little boy, imagined that if I could read something, maybe I could do that stuff. Maybe I could go see the lions playing on the beach. It opened me up. It made me wide open to whatever I saw on magazines. And after that, I was constantly going through them, looking at the pictures at first. And then I began to be more interested, like I had been with the old man in the sea, that there was really something wonderful in these packages. And I wanted to make them. I remember wanting to do that when I was in high school. In your lovely new memoir about your mother, Irma, you describe where you've got books stashed in the car? Yeah. Uh, I had a problematic stepfather. They used to go out and go to bars and they would leave me in the car. So when I'm in the car, if I had a book, I was much happier than without. But he didn't want me to keep books in the car. So I would hide them under the seat. Huh. Yeah. Do you remember any titles that you had there? Any favorites? I, I remember all of those, like Custer's Last Stand, The Alamo, The Lewis and Clark Expedition. There was a whole series of random house books. I loved those especially. In the book, you describe what comes across as a pretty tough, rugged childhood, fatherless, hard scrabble. Before you're 10, your mom's boyfriend puts out a cigar on your forehead. Another one calls you a panty waist and grabs you by the nuts. There's a cowboy kid who sucker punches you right in the gut. Uh, it's, it's tough stuff. And uh, finally, you get out. There's a little incident with a bench that you used against your stepfather and move on. But sounds pretty tough. Well, yeah, maybe from a distance. But I had my mother. And everything that we went through together, and I thought about it that way, was something that affected me and taught me something. When I got the Time Inc. or when I started moving up like corporate ladder or whatever, I would remember her telling me, you don't have to talk all the time to get people to listen to you. Stuff like that. Never raise your voice if you want people to listen to you. And always be thinking what it is you are really trying to accomplish. Because sometimes it will not be what you're thinking about in the moment. You have to constantly refresh yourself about what you're doing. And I would never have been who I turned out to be if I had not learned things like that from her. Where primarily did you grow up? The Santa Clara Valley, 
now Silicon Valley. It was just becoming suburban, and then it became mass suburban and Silicon Valley all at the same time. But when I was there, it was orchards, fruit trees, a lot of vacant lots. I could ride my bike from where I was, like three or four miles up the valley towards San Francisco to Cupertino, where Steve Jobs was from, 20 years behind me, but they were just starting to build houses. It was just cherry orchards and open fields, walnuts, apricots. It was wild nature. It was a, a really a wondrous, beautiful place. Jan Winter, when he read the book, he's from Northern California too, from Mill Valley. He said that he had learned a lot about me because I was down in those lonely gray suburbs. That was the way they viewed it if you were a sophisticated kid in San Francisco or Marin County. But down there, I, I didn't even know about Marin County. It was a beautiful place to grow up. And you ended up with a football scholarship to Berkeley, correct? I did, but I didn't stay there. I joined the revolution, I guess, is the way to put that. <laughs> you know, a columnist for the San Francisco Examiner named Charles McCabe, after the spring game, called me the fastest of the slow. I was okay, but I was not going to be a football star. That's for sure. I was just pretty lucky in high school. So you must have played and played fairly well in high school. Yeah, that was a good part of my identity in high school. That's what I did. Yeah, when you play at the the local club, the club championship in golf, if you're in the last flight and you win it, you can say you're the best of the worst. That's good. So you ended up doing some work abroad. Can you quickly tell us what you did? Yeah, I wanted to be in journalism. and I'd gone to art school and I had learned about some cameras. And so I thought, I've got to get out of here. I was working construction and said, how do I get to become a journalist? So my mother loaned me enough money to buy a good camera, an H16 Bolex used for $700 or something and a ticket. And I left and I wound up in Beirut during what was then called Black September. This is way back 1970. Yasser Arafat was organizing the PLO, and that's where they first hijacked an airplane and they blew it up on the railway. And that's what I did. But I was like a lot of freelancers at the time anyway. I was faking it. I was acting like I was some real correspondent and I was just sort of bouncing around. But I was good enough because I sold some pictures that got picked up by the Associated Press. And I got to work in New York in news features making film strips. If you remember what those were, they were like single frame things that would click through and there'd be a narration with a little bell that would tell you to move to the next slide. Shot the pictures, you wrote the script, you recorded it. Stuff like Alienation and Mass Society was the title. So you, boy, you dove right into it and then you're back in the U.S. and tell us about how you got your first job in magazines. I think if someone you knew at L.A. magazine moved to... No, I just, I heard about this thing in L.A. that guy named Carl Fleming had started. He had been the bureau chief for Newsweek, and he wanted to do his own idea of what a magazine would be like for Los Angeles. He loved Los Angeles. And he hired a guy named Bob Sherrill, who was a friend from the South, where Carl was from. Bob had been at Esquire for a number of years. And so I wrote to them, and they said, okay, come on out, you're hired. Because I was working at the Associated Press, I think they thought they were getting a hardcore AP on-the-nose journalist, and they weren't. They were getting me, but it worked out, and it was from them that I learned that I might want to be an editor, because it was all about ideas, and it was wide open, and it was just fun to ride around LA with Bob Sherrill and talking about this story or that story or whatever came to our minds. I know we're cutting through a lot of things here quickly, but you then end up in New York City at Outside Magazine at its founding, and that's, of course, a Jan Winner-owned publication. This is 1977. How did you end up there? Well, actually, what happened was Jan could not wait to get Rolling Stone to New York, but we launched outside out of San Francisco right as Rolling Stone moved to New York. So Outside remained in San Francisco, and okay. that's what happened. But I'd been in San Francisco, and I was out of work, and I'd been written a novel that I couldn't get anybody to buy, and there was Outside Magazine, and I went in there and talked my way into a job. And then I knew that was what I was going to do. It was about the work, more serious than I had been before. And that was when you first met Jan? Yeah, yeah. And he's the one you talked into hiring you? No, it was 
William Randolph Hearst III, Will Hearst, who now sits on top of the Hearst Corporation. He's the chairman of the board. And how was it at outside? It was great. The idea was that uh, the outdoors were about a lot more than like share a club. But what we really did was invent the adventure travel genre. Okay, so Winner sells it just two years after launch. Mm -hmm. And apparently you hadn't had enough of that genre. And you dive into Rocky Mountain magazine. That wasn't about the outdoors and adventure travel. That was a regional magazine for what we called the Deep West. I was a big fan of Texas Monthly, Bill Broyles. They had done that. And when I was in New York, I was in awe of Clay Felker. I didn't know him until later, but I had watched him. And what he had done was put two things in the same magazine that at the time were very surprising, shopping and politics. And suddenly it was a big click in the mind of New Yorkers. That was exactly what they were interested in. Shopping, including real estate. That was a quintessential city magazine for me. And I thought, well, this is a new thing. Where were you based? Denver, Cherry Creek. But I traveled all over the West, all over New Mexico, Wyoming, Colorado, many times, Montana, where I wound up living, Idaho, Utah, wonderful places. It's really sad there's no digital footprint for the publication. I was hunting around and I kept finding Rocky Mountain Bride which I don't think has anything to do with it. Your art director, Hans Tiensma, who has appeared on this podcast in season one, he says, you guys went out there, drove all over the place, and said you were freaking out because there really wasn't much out there. And he said, one of you took a photo of a couple of dead rabbits. I'm not sure which one of you, and that you fell in love with it and turned it into a full spread, full bleed image in the magazine. Do you remember that? Well, there was no more symbolic image of a particular part of Wyoming than that. And that was sophisticated and ironic. And Hans was brilliant at that. He gave that magazine a look that translated beyond visual. It gave you an attitude about you loved where you lived and you embraced all of the ironies that went along with that, including roadkill. And that magazine uh, won a National Magazine Award in the general excellence category. Pretty impressive. So you ended up, again, with all these Jan Wenner connections. I think next you went on to Rolling Stone. Yeah, and then I was in New York. And how did you evolve what Rolling Stone was at the time? Well, three things happened. The bottom fell out of the music business. The cars were the biggest hit. They were the band, and the police were not even on the scene yet. So I got Jan into putting the music reviews in the back and putting something we call art and politics in the front and then features and we started putting movie stars on the cover jack nicholson goldie hahn meryl streep and that all really worked so rolling stone kind of took off again and jan spent part of that time in the movie business so i had probably more autonomy for a while than most of his editors had but we got along really well, and it really worked out. And then right when I was leaving to go to Newsweek, MTV came, and the music business was back. All mm. new, all interesting, all kinds of great new acts, bands, whatever. Interesting time. I've long been a big reader of Rolling Stone, and I remember in 1980, I was a freshman in college and had a big poster of L.A. Woman, the Doors album cover in my room. And I was part of that uh, uh, massive amount of people who were completely re-engaged with the Doors long after Jim Morrison's death. And they were selling like crazy. And you picked up on and did a cover story in which Jim Morrison was on the cover with what I think is a Hall of Fame headline. Jim Morrison, he's hot, he's sexy, and he's dead. Can you tell us a little bit about how that headline came to be? There's been a lot of discussion of that headline because, as I recall, it came out of a room... And in the room were Jan Winner, David Rosenthal, who was my deputy at the time, who replaced me as the editor when I went to Newsweek, and me. And somehow out of that room came that headline. David claims that he wrote it. Jan says that's absurd. He wrote it. It sounds just like him. And then, of course, I thought that I had done it. And this has been like a rolling fake feud for a long time. And in the end, I don't think it really matters because what it does is it underlines the kind of collaboration that makes magazines really fun when they're clicking. 
Yeah, that's great. I've had that experience myself where well after the fact, there's that great cover or great cover line and multiple people are taking responsibility for it. And at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter. And I guess ultimately the editor top the masthead, it deserves credit for making it happen. It does say something about collaboration, memory, ego. Yeah, good point. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. You've said that headlines can ruin a good story and they can also be the most fun part of editing. Talk a little more about writing headlines. Well, I think that in those moments, you had to assume, or at least I assume, that some people were going to go through your magazine and only read the headlines of the display copy. So that was the place where you had to throw your attitude and your identity and your humor and everything about yourself as a magazine or as a brand, as it was soon beginning to be called. Brand became like a monstrous word almost all of a sudden. It used to be applied to, you know, cornflakes, and then it was suddenly magazines. But the thing about it was that that language, if it was powerful and funny and not arrogant and never mean, would serve you well. And the people would understand who you were and what it was about. And if you could get some to read a story, fine. But sometimes people would just read the headlines and really like the magazine. I had a really terrible though, experience. I made a terrible mistake. Spike Lee had just directed X, his great film about Malcolm X. And we had a funny story that was also serious in a way that Spike always was, always is, in spite of the way he would front off. He's just a complicated, good man. So... We shot the picture of him with his hands crossed across his chest, making an X, and it was beautiful, rich, deep, dark, and him looking really good. And this is for Esquire. Yeah. I slow down because I hate to think about what I did. I had this idea, because I knew him a little bit, that what would be funny would be, in the headline inside, we said, Spike Lee hates your cracker ass which was going right at Esquire's demo, right? But we thought pretty funny. And he called me up and he said, what's wrong with you? And I knew as soon as I saw it in print that I had made this huge mistake, but only one word was wrong. If I had said Spike Lee loves your cracker ass, would have been a completely different story. Does Spike Lee hate your cracker ass? That's what I want to know. No, that was the whole point. He's making these movies as an anti-racist. He's a righteous guy. He's not kidding. He wasn't even really angry at me on the phone. He just said, what's wrong? I thought uh, you were not stupid. Yeah, I think I've heard you say before that a headline is better if it is not mean-spirited. I think you put that in the mean-spirited bank, but thanks for sharing that. The whole trick to why Us Weekly worked, too. We wanted to create an American tabloid, but not mean. So like uh -huh. the fashion police uh -huh. that was supposed to make fun of what people were wearing wasn't mean at all. It was either funny or complimentary or whatever. We didn't do those hard-ass stories only once in a while. It was fluffy-ass journalism, but it was not mean-spirited, and people really liked that. Not every job. Well, yeah, and I'm going to ask you a question or two about us in a couple of minutes here. I'm wondering now if you could tell us about the conception and launch of Smart Magazine. This was primarily you doing the driving and the fundraising. Tell us what you were trying to do and how it came together. I wanted to start my own magazine because I had been around these launches and I liked doing that. It was fun, creative, energizing, all of those wonderful words. And I was at Newsweek and it occurred to me that I could maybe raise a little money. And I just met Steve Jobs and he had given me to play with one of the first Macs, those ones that stood up, like put discs in them. And I realized that you could probably do 
whole magazine on that. Adobe was just getting started. We were a, a beta site for them when we got rolling. Roger Black came, and he was the one who said, type is the sushi of the 90s. And we were just playing with all this digital stuff, and we were able to create a magazine and ship directly to the printer with no paste up, none. All that was gone. It was just so much cheaper. So we launched Smart for like three or four hundred thousand dollars. But most startups would have taken three or four million dollars. Wow. And I wanted to create my own sort of version of Esquire or New York magazine, other stuff that I had envied. I wanted to be a writer's magazine. And I gave some of the writers stock for being part of it. And all those writers got filthy rich off that, right? Yeah. Every time that they're basking in their pool, they're thanking me for that. Hunter Thompson thought that was great, but then thought we should sell it all to Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, who we all knew, and they were big supporters. And for a minute, it looked like that might actually happen. And then I was broke. We didn't have enough money to sustain it. And we got an offer from a Japanese company. And that was right when I got the offer from Hearst to go to Esquire, which wouldn't have happened if I had not started smart. Interesting um, how that happens. I was told that I can either take that job and just not care about smart or the job was going to go away. You got like 20 seconds to make that decision. Did the buyer of smart keep it alive? It went for a couple more issues and then it went away because his company in Tokyo started having a lot of problems. And how, from your perspective, how was smart received by advertisers and readers? Well, everybody told me they liked it and we had some serious good advertisers who got the program, but it wasn't mass enough and we didn't have the circulation we might have had, although we were critically well received. But it was how I got to know Tina Brown and Graydon Carter because they had both told me, this is great. And they were very complimentary about it within the small world of magazines and there was a lot of satisfaction in that, and that went a long ways. Graydon was starting Spy at the same time. Well, Tina I remember was, it, and yeah. I remember it had a really sharp look. And again, no digital footprint for that publication, which is quite sad, although you can find some of the covers online. I also noticed, just in case you have a bunch of bound volumes down the basement, that somebody is selling a complete set of Smart Magazine for $450 online, if you are so inclined to sell or buy. Well, all those covers are on my website. How did you connect with the great art director, Roger Black, to work on that publication? When I left the AP to go to New York to work on this little countercultural startup in Los Angeles for Carl Fleming, they hired me, and I was 25, and they hired Roger to be the art director, and he was like 24. And we mm. were immediately drawn to each other, and we have been friends ever since then, many years. And I get the sense you were a pretty active partnering with art directors. Can you describe what your relationship was with art directors over the years? Well, the joke among them was that I wanted to be an art director, which was fair enough. But I used to sit right next to them, especially Roger, and we would create, we would blow through the whole magazine. I would write the headlines and he would slap them in there and we'd look at it, we'd play with the picture. And so instead of having to send things back and forth and taking what sometimes seemed like forever on deadlines, we would just sit at that computer with a big screen and knock it out. When he was starting out magazine, I even sat next to him when he was doing that and wrote these headlines, although some of the people that were also helping us didn't think it was right for a guy who wasn't gay to be writing first big gay magazine cover lines. But that was maybe a window into the future. Back to Hans Tiensma, whom you hired at Outside, he says, you never forget your first editor. And he has very nice things to say about you. And uh, one of them is that you mentored him and taught him how to go out drinking and stay up all night. Well, he's not bad at that himself. Well, those Europeans, I think they do have a hand up on that. You ever have to fire an art director? Not exactly, but some people moved around a little bit. That was the hardest thing about any of those jobs. When the cost cutting started. Yeah. Now, I never worked you know, with an art director that I didn't like, ever. I believe you wrote in your 2016 book, The Accidental Life. I think you said there that despite all the jobs you had, you only got fired from one. Where was that? That was Esquire. And can you share with us how you got the news? How did you learn you were out? My agent called me and said, you've been fired. And I said, how do you know? 
And she said, because they just announced over at New York Magazine that Ed Kozner, who was the editor there at the time, was the new editor of Esquire. I said, no, cannot be. And then I got a call to go talk to Clays Berenberg, who ran the first magazine division then. And he said, well, there's two things you can do here. You can either go away, sue me, get your contract, get a bunch of money and leave, or you can go over and edit Sports of Field, make it a different kind of magazine. So I did the latter. The reason I was fired was discussed at some length in the media. The cover that everyone seems to think got me there was I did a a cover that was white on white and it said white people and very small at the bottom in black it said the trouble with America and then inside we set out to prove that in sort of a literary ironic sometimes badass way that proved both popular and something that I'm quite proud of in most ways but also problematic for me. So you get a call from your agent. That's interesting. That's almost the precursor of firing by tweet in a way, which... No, but they didn't tell her. She was just better connected than I was. Yes. Yeah. And someone in another magazine office told her. I always thought I was her pet, but she has many pets. She's still my agent. Binky Urban. Well, let me let me do something here. I've got a list of 10 things here. They're names, titles, phrases. I'm just going to say them one at a time and ask you to just quickly tell me the first thing that comes to mind and try to be brief, but there could be some storytelling here. And God knows I might even bait you a little bit. Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Complicated, stupid, pain in the ass, moneymaker. Jan Wenner. Brilliant editor, misunderstood. Liz Tilberis. My best friend while she was here. Brilliant editor. She, of course, was from British Vogue, came to America and edited Harper's Bazaar at Hearst. How did you meet her? Clay's Merberg, who had hired her, called me into the office and said, I've hired Tuberis. Would you please introduce her around? So I met her right away, and she came out to stay with us in Sagaponic the next weekend. Hmm. And it was Easter, and there was a party, and we went, and she met a whole bunch of people. And from then on, she was staying with me, and she always credited me incorrectly, of course, with showing her her way in New York. Because if there was ever anyone whose instincts were perfect for negotiating media minefields and using creative firepower, talent, whatever, to create really unique things, it would have been her. And she's also an extremely funny woman. Okay, the fourth one here is a dog on every page. Ah, that was wonderful. I was vaguely bitter, not not vaguely. I was not in the perfect mental health when I went from (laughs) Esquire to the, well, no, I mean, think about it. At Esquire, I would go to Fashion Week in Milan, and then I'm suddenly at uh, Forza Field, and I go to the SHOT Show in Las Vegas. If you don't know what the SHOT Show is, it speaks for itself. It's the biggest gun show in whatever, so... Just to prove that I could do some things. And of course, everyone would like sports field, like dogs. So I thought, this is a challenge. How do we do this? Well, we did it. So you had a picture or an illustration or some form of a dog on every page? Every editorial page. And it was basically to, to say that you did it. It was very popular. It was like the kind of a thing you do as an instinct or as a joke. And then somebody says, hey, I really like that with a dog on every page. So they like you. Even if they're not saying, boy, that Terry McDonald, what a genius. He put a dog on every page. There's something about it. They don't know who I am, but there's something about it that makes them say, this sports a field. This is pretty cool. Dog on every page. And that was just (laughs) a one-time deal? Yes. You can't necessarily do that again, I thought then, but now I'm thinking maybe it's time. Well, I'm glad to hear you didn't follow up with a cat on every page. That might have affected the readers somewhat differently. (laughs) Well, think about that. I mean, there are more cat magazines than dog magazines. Okay, your favorite poem or poet, having written some poetry yourself? The Wasteland just lit my hair on fire when I first read it, but it would be Jim Harrison. When I was writing this recent book, after he died, there was a huge collection of all of his poetry that uh, came out. It's a beautiful book, and they're all there. And when I was writing that book, I would read one of his poems every day before I started work and note the weather or something. And that gave me some sort of inspiration sometimes. And sometimes when I was stuck, 
I would go and read the next poem. And maybe that's not the way you decide who your favorite poet is, but I love that poetry. You've worked with so many incredible writers, and I highly recommend your book for those who want to know more about your dealings with these writers. I'm going to pick one out here and just see what you have to say. And the reason I've chosen this one is because I feel like he's being slowly forgotten. Edward Abbey. Oh, God. Ed was just this wonderful, gracious outlaw who you just did not want to fuck with. But if you understood him and got what he was saying, which was, what's wrong with you people? This is the earth. This is all we have. The beauty of it changes everything in your life. And accept that. And he was just a magnificent guy. The way we started was, he didn't have a phone, but he was living in Moab, Utah. And I tracked him down. He was at a certain bar in Moab usually at this time of day for a drink. So I called the bar and I asked for him and he came on. And I introduced myself and I said, this is Outside Magazine. And would he like to write something maybe for me? And he said, well, the last thing I need is another editor, but I guess I could use the money. And so he started writing for Outside and he would send stuff by mail and then I would do something with it. And he would be on the payphone at that bar in Moab and we would work it out. And he wrote a lot of stuff. And every place I went after that, he wrote for me. Golf, specifically with George Plimpton and Hunter Thompson. Well, the first thing that came to mind was Trump cheats at golf. Oh, yes. Well, when I was at Sports Illustrated, underneath Sports Illustrated umbrella were all these golf magazines. And Donald always wanted to have his golf course at the top of the list of best golf course, best mm. golf course, best golf course, best, most classiest golf course. And they weren't clearly, but he would call up and rail at me about that. It's fake news. He said, nah, no, nah, it's all fake. Mine are the best. Mine are the best. Mine are the best. And then Rick Riley, who was the great columnist there, did a book called Who's Your Caddy? And he played with everyone. He played with almost every major sports politics celebrity you could think about, Michael Jordan, the best golfers. And only two people out of 45 that he played with cheated, Trump and Clinton. Of course, Rick Riley was your highly paid, highly compensated back page columnist there at at Sports Illustrated for a while. Let's do golf 2.0, golf with George Plimpton and Hunter. George Plimpton wanted to do the first Parish Review interviews. A journalist at work, we were calling him, so he and I went out to Woody Creek to interview Hunter. And when we arrived, Hunter said, well, yeah, good. But first, we got to play golf. But it was late in the afternoon. It never gets completely dark out there in the summer, but it was dusky. So we go to the Aspen golf course, and the guy who runs it waves to Hunter as we go in, and he's driving out, and it's our course. And Hunter, in his golf bag he has a shotgun and all kinds of crazy clubs and then he's got a big cooler with all kinds of liquor and ice and it just got everything and so we're going to play this game where it's basically three holes best ball kind of thing and george is a great athlete and he of course could play golf but before we start hunter says again and he takes out these three tabs that have this little strange logo on them and says eat this in its acid. So I do. George sniffs it and said, I don't know. So Hunter grabbed it and ate that one too. So then we are at the second hole. There's a lake and geese and Hunter drives and misses the green and is infuriated because of the noise that the geese started making. Took the shotgun out of the bag, fired over the head of the geese. They all lifted off. It was this white thing and hunter and i are on acid it was like the end of the world or heaven or something and george just looked at us and then i could hear the tinkle of him making another doers and water crazy stuff well in your book you talk about you were of an era the drug culture was part of it i think you mentioned snorting coke with yon wenner which doesn't necessarily put you in limited company but yeah new york in the 80s did drugs affect your work? Any influence on your creativity or your work directly? 
No, I mean, I, I don't like the way it turned out because all of that fun stuff ultimately killed a bunch of my best friends. Addiction was the worst thing. Alcoholism was everywhere. We have a joke. There was an organization that Pete Axel made up called SOFA, which stood for the Society of Functioning Alcoholics. And this was like a big joke. But when Hunter killed himself, it was because he had such terrible addiction. It didn't end well ever. Although it is tragic that he never got to write for your golf publication. What is really tragic is he never got to cover Trump. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Just two more. Miami Vice. Just fun and a huge change for me. Michael Mann. You wrote an episode uh, or two or three. Yeah. It was really how I learned to write TV movies. I was at Newsweek and it was the anniversary of the fall of Saigon. And I found this story about some people who were smuggling heroin out of Vietnam in body bags. And I thought, God, that's just wow. And I knew a guy at Fox named David Fields. He always was saying, if you come across any stories, it might be a movie or whatever, just let me know. So I told him about that. The next day, Michael Mann called me and said, I've got this new show I want to talk to you about. It. Let's have breakfast. And I said, yeah. And I told him what I knew. I gave him the research. He said, why don't you write it? And I said, I've never done anything like this. I don't know how to do that. He said, I'll teach you. And it wonderful. <laughs> There's no better writer than him, and when it was fun. Crockett and Tubbs. I had to look that up to remember, but I just want to be able to say. My first episode, Don had just emerged, Crockett had emerged as a huge star, like sudden stardom, although he had been a working actor for a long time already. And for his directorial debut, he was going to do this Miami Vice episode called Back in the World. And uh, Miami Vice then was rolling at about six days, $500,000, $600,000 per episode, a day off, do another one, whatever. This one went a million five and ran 13 days to get it done. And it was because Don was directing it and could do whatever he wanted. He got all Doors music. Just that alone was a huge mm. piece of cash. And it's good. It's a good episode. Well, we'll have to search for that. It's probably available on YouTube and maybe put a link on that. It's all over here. YouTube. You can't get away from it. Okay, finally, Us Weekly, particularly the weekly part. I believe you took it weekly. Yeah, that came out of business strategizing and looking at the numbers. The idea was People was, without question, the most successful magazine in the world. And it seemed to be alone in its genre. And Us Weekly seemed to be more like Entertainment Weekly or something. So the idea was, if you do, like I said before, a tabloid that is not mean-spirited, it is not about cats who walk from Seattle to Nome and go home again, headlines and stuff like that. It was a friendly, happy weekly about celebrities aimed at people in their 20s. People's demo was much older than that. And it was, if you did this right, you can make a lot of money. I believe Carol Wallace was then at People Magazine. Yeah, they were just raking it in. Yeah. And I had worked for her 10 years before at Us Magazine when it was a bi-weekly and I thought the pace was enough there. That was enough for me. Well, I mean, you didn't have any money, right? No. You didn't have enough people. Yeah. Well, yeah. when we did us, we staffed up. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Issues Magazine Shop. Much like this podcast, we exist to celebrate the people and projects keeping print alive. We sell a mix of independent and commercial titles from around the world, shipping globally from our retail shop in Toronto, Canada. Visit us online at issuesmagshop.com. Stack the Independent Magazine Club delivers a different publication every month to our subscribers all around the world. You never know what we're going to send next, but you do know it will be a beautiful, intelligent, independent magazine that deserves a place on your shelf. We'd love to start sending something your way, so go to stackmagazines.com to sign up and start receiving a surprise magazine every month. Everyone always says, oh my God, Terry McDonald, that seems like a fish out of water at Us Magazine. But particularly in changing the frequency, it just reminds me of something you've said that they just relate to so much. And that's magazines. I love putting them together. And that's so subject agnostic. It doesn't matter what the content is. Talk about that. Magazine making is to be really gushy about. It's really cool. It's really fun. There's so much to it. There's the mix, the pacing the visuals, the design, typography, 
display copy, does the package work, the cover, great writing or great news or great service or whatever you happen to be doing. It's a puzzle and it's collaborative and it comes together very fast at the end. And that was very attractive to me. And I think a lot of people like Raiden Carton says, you have to be able to see around corners. You've also written of the importance of five key members of any magazine staff beside the editor-in-chief and, of course, the art director. The four other ones, when they do their jobs really well, they're very often unsung heroes. If they don't do their jobs well, everybody's fucked. They are managing editor, copy chief, research editor, and photo editor. Could you just comment on those positions? Yeah. When I wrote about that, it was in the context of, uh, you know, women in the magazine business. Because many of the places where I was the editor-in-chief, all of those positions were filled by women. And the uncomfortable, not secret at all, but the uncomfortable reality of all that was it was very difficult for women to rise to the top of masthead, even though they did all of those other jobs, often underneath someone who's not as good as they were. And a whole bunch of people knew that. And so that was going to change, but it for sure it took too long. But it is hard to imagine getting a magazine out without those people, male or female. I don't mean to jump no. into the politics of that, but yeah, you, you needed all those people. Now you do not. Now you can do it yourself. I mean, look at you guys. Yeah, there's a lot of do-it-yourself out there. And I would say that even this podcast in the short time it's been around, the do-it-yourself tech behind it has evolved greatly. And I, you know, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Patrick's the one who does it all. Okay, let's go down memory lane just a little bit here. How do you look back on the go-go 90s and how much freaking money everybody had to spend? That was not really my 90s because it was the high point of magazine editors made more than any other time. But I was getting more and more excited about technology up to the time that I got to Sports Illustrated in 2002. It was like, it's like there was too much money, but there's still so much money and so much inequity. It's tragic that we are not able to smooth that out a little bit. Well, in 2010, at Sports Illustrated, you, and I remember it so well, it was so exciting, you developing the iPad version. Yeah, that was actually earlier. It was 2006 or 8. The thing about Time Inc. is that it's a great company with these great brands, and here's now it's 2000, and something's happening, and it's sort of making everybody a little uncomfortable. But there were three very distinct cultures at Time Inc. that I saw when I got there. There was an executive culture, which was risk-averse and desperate at the same time. Their P&Ls were falling and they were running. It was like trying to catch an eye if some things were falling so fast. This technology is just breaking open. The edit culture was arrogant, defensive, clueless, about what was coming and generally thought that the people in IT could fix the air conditioning after they fixed your email. And the people in the IT culture were ironic and more than vaguely bitter about being completely underestimated. So it was a hard place to really get anything done. But because of the desperation I spoke about earlier and because I had this experience and we were doing well digitally with what we did with swimsuit and the website, I started recruiting people from these different cultures. And what I would do is I would invite them to join the Machiavelli Club. And then I would send them an email that would say, there is no more delicate matter to take in hand, nor more dangerous to conduct, nor more doubtful in its success than to be a leader in the introduction of change. For he who innovates will have for enemies all those are well off under the old order of things and only lukewarm supporters in those who might be better off under the new. So we're the Machiavelli Club. And it was maybe the best six months I'd ever had when we were developing all that stuff. What a great and it name. worked. That quotes from The Prince. And listeners can go to your website and see the actual little demos that were put together when the iPad version of SI was being born. And they are wonderfully archaic. Really uh, yeah, zombie hands. The, the zombie hands and the expression that I love is combines the best of the magazine with the best of the web. But there again was that horrible dilemma that shouldn't have been a dilemma of, well, do you charge for it? 
maybe it should be free. Maybe it's an advertisement, which just muddled the whole thing about the magazine, which was by then reduced to you get a, like a football phone and a bad windbreaker and the magazine 50 times a year for like 11 cents because it was just all out of whack. We should have been charging for Sports Illustrated what it cost, but it would become this advertising and newsstand juggernaut, which was about to like. I was always immensely disappointed that renewing my subscription did not get me a football phone. I never got a football phone and damn it, I wanted a football phone. A few years ago, I discovered a website. I fell in love with it. I go to it at least a couple times a week. And in preparing for this episode, I had no idea you were one of the people behind it. LitHub, Literary Hub, LitHub.com. What a great site for anyone who loves books or if we want to be fancy, who loves literature. Can you talk about what your role is with that? Morgan Entrican and I, he, Grove Atlantic, are co-founders. For some years when I was at Sports Illustrated, I would take his books that were about sports and exert them online. And the idea was, well, why don't all the publishers do that? Well, they had no connection. And so the books weren't getting traction or any attention and they would have been great across all these new websites, but it wasn't happening. So then when I left Time Inc., we started thinking about, was that a business? And would it be interesting editorially? And then all of a sudden it was. So he pulled together all of the big five publishing houses and we got them to all become members by subscriptions. And for that, we would put their stuff on the website. They would get advertising and it would grow. And, and then we would assign some of our own. I drew the original wireframes and I did that mm. thing with Joan Didion, Read to Live, all that took off. And then we got these really smart people, Andy Hunter and Johnny Diamond and Emily Firetalk. And they just took it to the next level. Morgan is still very involved. I'm like crazy uncle now. Is it doing well? Yeah, we're over 5 million. The traffic is huge. And we're assigning more and more stories. Crime Reads was spun off of it for people who are into mysteries, crime, whodunits, thrillers, all that stuff. That's a whole very vital part of the literary community now. And completely and deeply connected to television and movies. So you get, all that's there to help you. And there's also a place where the book reviews are that summarizes all the different reviews for any particular title that you can keep. Oh, that to me is brilliant. The, the site is dense. There's so much stuff there. I often am finding new things. But the idea of aggregating book reviews, it's like, God, why didn't I think of that? I mean, of course, and your aggregator is great. It is sophisticated, but accessible. Here's 10 cool new book jackets. Yeah. It just comes at the, the business, so many different angles. I really like that site, and it's great to hear how involved you were with starting it. We're trying to do it, not the New York Times bestseller list. That's great, too. We're working on it. What else are you doing these days? Well, I have the book, which is what got us together here, about my mother and how everything ever happened to me revolves around lessons from her. But a bunch of it's about media. Some of it's about why I left timing. I once asked the senior HR executive what it was about the truth that made it impossible for her to speak it, which was something I'm very proud of. But I did it in a meeting and it was not good that I did that. But some of that stuff's in the book. Yeah, the book's great. What about the future of media? Are we still in let it rip mode? How's artificial intelligence influencing your thinking as to where things might be going? Well, in a way, it goes back to the people making the content that was valuable, giving it away for free. Barry Diller was just talking about how you got to find a way to work together out of business, in business, whatever, because all those AI things are really based on other content, other places. What I think the future is about is like niche things that can get bigger and bigger. You don't start a general interest mag. You got to find something. LitHub is a good example of what will work on the web. You could probably do that for bicycles. You could probably do it for toys. Maybe they're all stores, maybe they're whatever. But what I will always like is something that I can feel is really touched by an editor. Like airmail feels like that to me now. It may not be everybody's taste, but for a certain, there it is. It's great it Carter's website. Yeah, and Jim Kelly has a bunch of really good editors there. Yeah, I get to what you're saying. Go vertical, go deep. And that's a model for local too. 
I've noticed that uh, airmail has gotten back into uh, comically the magazine business somewhat with this MAGA zine. Have you seen what they're doing? Yeah, it's classic. Yes, it's it spy. is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's spy illustrated. And why That's not? That's where short fingered Bulgarian came from. That's what they used to call Trump and the spy. Made him oh, crazy. Yeah. If you go to Graydon's restaurant, the Waverly Inn, on the menu, across the top, it says, worst food in New York, Donald Trump. They're just blasting about that stuff. What would your advice be to a 25-year-old who is interested in, I don't know, journalism? Is that even a thing anymore? A 25-year-old who's interested in journalism or media. You got any advice? Yeah, start stuff. Startups is where you learn the most. Try doing your own stuff. I think it's really hard to get the kind of jobs that ultimately play to our nostalgia about what it's like to be a reporter, a foreign correspondent, that kind of stuff. But to get there, you've got to go out and do stuff. At least my friends, the people that I know, mostly that's how they got into it. It's never too early to try to write a novel. Okay. We usually wrap things up with our big money question. And this time I'm going to ask you, if you were given a big boatload of money, let's say it's Laureen Powell Jobs. Let's say perhaps she just feels guilty over the fact that her husband and his inventions helped in the demise of the magazine industry. You've got an unlimited amount of money. You are the editor. It's got to be print, a print magazine. It can be other things too. You're not worried about making money or distribution. What would you do? I think I'm the kind of editor who doesn't want to do something that doesn't have a business plan that makes sense. I want what I make to be valued by the people I make it for. So that influences everything that I think about. And I have one, actually. It's called Passing Lane. And it's about move fast, catch up, learn things, speed up. Mm. That focuses all of the things that I'm interested in, which is maybe close to what you're interested in, if it's journalism and literature and design. So you get stuff from all over the web, the best of the web, plus sort of focused on these interests that I have, maybe some other people have too. And then I do a big-ass quarterly or a big-ass yearly, some big thumping thing, pulls all that together somehow that resonates with the old values of graphic design and big pictures and ironic headlines and like that. I have a but, complicated history with Steve. Yeah. Let's go there. You want that story? Of course we do. Well, I knew Steve from way back, right when he was launching the, the first Mac. We had dinner with a journalist in the Washington Post named Tom Zito at the time. And this is in the time when he was doing, it's like a bicycle for your mind. He had all this wonderful language and he's so charming and so smart. He's great. And over the years, I wrote a Miami Vice script on one of those early machines and Steve paid attention when I put him on the cover of Newsweek, and we once did a swimsuit shoot, and all the model was wearing was an iPod. But then I did that demo for the Sports Illustrated iPad. So Steve comes to Time, Inc. to show us the iPad for the first time. He's making the rounds in the New York Times. And at that meeting, then one of the big boardroom is the editor of Time and Fortune and People and EW. We're all there. And he comes in and he's got these iPad and he passes them around. And the first thing that Ann Moore, who's running the company, then does is she goes and she hits it. And she happens to hit my voice saying, hi, I'm Terry McDonald and here's your new issue. And Andy Sewer said, so Steve, so what do you think of that? He said, I think that's really stupid. And I didn't say anything. And he looked over and he recognized that we knew each other. And he said, you make that? I said, yeah. He said, ah, oh, it's too bad. And the meeting went on, and then the meeting is over, and we're all going away. And I walked by, and I said, it's really a great thing that you built. And he says, no hard feelings. I was just negotiating. For more information on McDonald, visit his website, terrymcdonald.com. We highly recommend grabbing both of his recent books, Irma, The Education of a Mother's Son, and The Accidental Life, and Editor's Notes on Writing and Writers, available wherever books are sold.
If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high-quality independent podcasting, including The Briny, a podcast about the way we're changing the sea and the way the sea changes us. Each episode shows how the oceans are recovering, or not, from centuries of abuse, how they inspire people to acts of heroism and adventure, and how they've become sites of experimentation to pull us out of our climate catastrophe. Listen at thebriny.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is made possible by support of listeners like you. If you'd like to contribute to keeping the podcast going, there are two easy ways. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>